Hey, I'm Tommy Chong. Welcome to High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody, and welcome to High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from Percy'sGrowing.com. In this week's interview, we speak to Tom Alexander. He was recommended to us a few weeks ago when we spoke to Jeff Lowenfowles. He said we need to get Tom Alexander on the show. So we went and did that, and it was a great conversation. This guy has been around for a very long time. He was the founder of one of the original cannabis magazines called Sensimilla Tips, and he's also the founder of a magazine called The Growing Edge. He used to have a grow shop that got shut down by the police. He had a big grow that got shut down by the police. He did some journalism. He's got some crazy stories. A real cool guy. Been through a lot throughout the last 40, 50 years with cannabis prohibition. And he was even around before Jorge wrote his first book as well. Because he's good friends with Jorge Cervantes and Jeff Lowenfels and Ed Rosenthal. Just part of that circle of legends that we know from back in the day before people were allowed to do this thing. It was a massive pleasure speaking to him. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, so roll yourself a fat one, build yourself a bowl, whatever it is you do, and chill out and listen to this interview with Tom Alexander. And I'll speak to you at the end of this. I'll see you in a bit, everybody. Joining us, I'll quickly introduce myself. Uh, I am Mackie from the UK, uh, the host of High and Homegrown. We also have Monkey. Do you want to say hi, Monkey? This is Monkey down here in the Southeast USA. How's it going, man? Yeah, so uh, Jeff Lowenfels recommended to get you up on the show when we had Jeff on the show a couple of weeks ago. So you want to quickly introduce yourself so everybody knows who you are? Well, I'm a longtime cannabis activist who's now retired. I uh, published a magazine called Sensimia Tips from 1980 to 1990. I opened a... a, a a store in Corvallis, Oregon, that, that was both uh, indoor and outdoor supplies in 1981. And uh, then I'll get into it later how both of those businesses came crashing down uh, thanks to the DEA. And mm -hmm. so about a year before it all hit the fan, I saw it in sort of a premonition and I started another magazine called Growing Edge which I did that from uh, 1988 until 2009. And, um, and I retired at that point mm -hmm. and, and sort of became a cannabis consultant, moved to Sacramento, California from Corvallis, Oregon. And uh, that's where I am now. But about two years ago, I had a heart attack and retired from everything, just uh, hanging out and, and, uh, just yeah for going. sure after a heart attack i suppose that's what you want to do just retire you know take it easy from there yeah so you've been in the game for a long time then yeah i i uh first got introduced to cannabis in college in uh the the late 60s in high school i was this jock and against cannabis and mm -hmm. uh would actually uh get in fights over it and <laughs> And when I got to college, the first thing we go to Vietnam veteran Vietnam uh, war demonstrations and met up with these Vietnam vets that are at the demonstration. And they brought in all this tie stick in their duffel bags coming back from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So I most people back then 
got introduced to cannabis with this dank Mexican ditchweed. I'm smoking this connoisseur Thai stick and mm -hmm. Vietnam stick and immediately said, whoa, that was fun because we're at these demonstrations <laughs> and it's just one big party. And then the National Guard is there and that's a, a basically later in the day, they're the National Guard starts a riot by charging everybody and beating their heads in. Luckily, I missed all that, but but uh, the whole uh, music and, and partying was fun. So at that point, I said, no, oh, that they were lying to us all this time. And uh, so that first summer when I went home, my parents, I think, suspected cannabis use or heard from their friends that once kids go to college, they start using cannabis. So they dragged me to a, a, a anti-drug meeting and they're oh, saying joy. all the, the bullshit lies about cannabis. And so uh -huh. I just start speaking up. I go, this is all a lie. This, it's not dangerous. <laughs> and my parents, my dad who brought me there is like, oh, geez. And so uh, on the ride home, we don't say anything. And uh, and so they basically just let it go and ignored it. But uh, it was uh, fun in college. We had like an animal house. That movie, we should have sued the movie. They copied everything that we did in college. We had like this animal house and a couple of the star hockey and football players were uh, dealers. And it was just crazy. But um, then I graduated college and moved to Cape Cod. And uh, this is like 1973. And so we go, well, it's just a plant. And so we planted some Mexican uh, seeds and we had no idea there were male and female because there wasn't that any books out yet. And, mm -hmm. and definitely no websites to visit. Yeah. Hey, I and had the so, same problem, uh, man. Yeah. So when the, the male plants start flowering, we thought we hit the jackpot and uh, all it did was give us headaches because <laughs> we're smoking this male plant but then uh when i moved to oregon in uh the mid 70s i immediately met cannabis growers all over oregon in western oregon near corvallis and roseburg and and uh in the mountains of of the coast range of oregon in the west and so i hook up with these hawaiian growers that bought five farms in Oregon and they hired me to be a manager of one of them. And we put in like 2,500 plants and farmed it into the hills uh, with no real machinery. We just like dug in the holes in the hills and uh, planted it up there. And so this is a cannabis farm. Yeah. And I was managing one of the five that they were uh that they owned and i didn't know this at the time but they were they were taking the cannabis from oregon and exporting it to hawaii and selling it as hawaiian because back then oregon was only getting 800 to a thousand a pound in hawaii they could get 32 to 3500 a pound Oof, mm -hmm. and the authorities weren't looking for it coming into hawaii they were looking for it going out of hawaii <laughs> wow and so they had this little thing going where they brought all the cannabis that we grew down there 
but I didn't know any of this. I thought they were just doing it in Oregon. And so I got a cut of the action based on the Oregon value. Oof, that's and, not cool. <laughs> um, so I took my cut of the action uh, that they gave me and bought a Kubota tractor and went up to <laughs> New York. This was down, that, what I just described was down in Roseburg, Oregon. And then we found this 160 acre place that we rented. That was a one room cabin, no electricity, just really a homestead basically. And we put in uh, about three quarters, half acre to three quarters of an acre with a Kubota tractor that I bought from the proceeds. And uh, I had a, bought a pickup truck and uh, we hauled all this corn silage that had overflowed their holding tank and it was just pure worms and worm castings. Mm -hmm. And I must have hauled 50 to 60 truckloads of, of this pure worm castings. And so we planted raised beds. Uh, we planted over 2000 plants and ended up with 1250 or so females. Nice. And so the, the place that we were living on had this old growth, uh, timber like uh, Douglas fir and, and cedar that were, you know, you couldn't even put your arms around the tree. They were so big. And so the timber companies wanted to cut them down. And so they contacted the landlord and uh, he had them cruise the, the land to give them an estimate how much the timber was worth. It was worth millions. And Oof. so the guy stumbled upon our patch and told the sheriffs and they watched oh. they watched us all summer and a week before we were going to start harvesting they came in and busted us uh and we were just hippies out in the hills and we were breaking for lunch and it was so far out we were just walking around naked all the time and stuff and so my wife and i were in our cabin naked they come out and they go with automatic weapons and say come out with your hands up and so i come walking out and nothing on and they go you got any weapons i go just this little pea shooter <laughs> and so they march us down to the to the patch and of course they invited the uh, television and newspaper with oh them. my gosh and they march us down and they first they say put some clothes on so we put on some clothes and we march down to the patch and of course, when we get there, they do a photo op of me getting handcuffed in front of all the big plants. We had oh, like, man. and we had genetics, land race genetics way back then, because these Hawaiian growers that I worked for the previous year had all this good genetics. They, they got it from uh, all over the world, basically. Hmm. And uh, so we had, we had ruderalis, we had indica, you know, ruderalis is what they use to do the autoflowers. They cross cross mm -hmm. with the uh, indicas to create autoflowers and and some sativas too. And so we had a mix of sativas, indicas, ruderalis. And so uh, so they get picture and we're on the front page and they, they uh, haul us down to the jail and my wife's pregnant and she's going to haul her down too and they throw her in jail. Damn. And so... Uh, after 24 hours, they let us, we appear before the judge and they let us out before the, uh, uh, on our own recognizance. We didn't really have to post bail, money bail. 
at my at my uh, at the arraignment, I pleaded with the judge. We had two acres of vegetables too, and the next day on Saturday, I was going to the farmer's market with my vegetables, and I pleaded the, my case. And you know, we we're struggling hippies, and he let us out on our own, own recognizance. Well, when we go to get our stuff, our possession, a wallet, and stuff like that. The evidence officer goes to us, thanks for the Christmas bonus. They were some of the best buds I've ever seen. Whoa. And we're looking, and we're looking at each other. What the hell? And so, uh, and he goes, you did a great job pulling the males from the females. And uh, we're there. This is weird. So <clears throat> a week later, I, I told my lawyer, I looked at the search warrant and it was worded wrong so it wasn't the property we we're living in it was like the northwest section of range 34 and in the southwest blah 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 so they had put a southwest where a northwest should have been and that the judge after my lawyer didn't believe me took it to the tax assessor and the tax assessor said yeah this isn't this property it's this property over here all so right the, so the the lawyer my lawyer tells the judge you know the tax assessor and he had some statement from the tax assessor and the judge took five minutes said case dismissed well awesome. i was all happy and stuff but then a week later the state police arrest three of the sheriffs that are, that arrested me because they didn't need the evidence anymore and they stole all the evidence no way and the state police arrested the sheriffs these what, three what year was that it was 1979. Wow. So, and so 70s, very corrupt. Yeah. So, and now that makes sense why they said, oh, it was some of the best buds we've ever seen. Thanks for the Christmas donut. So uh I I'm following their case because they're going to court and stuff. And the district attorney goes, Your Honor, they've suffered enough. They should only get three years probation. They pleaded not or they pleaded no low contendery, which is no contest. They weren't they weren't pleading guilty, but they basically said they were guilty, but not guilty. Anyway, the judge goes, Oh, I agree, three years probation. Well, I was facing 20 years and a hundred thousand dollars. So I got all pissed off. And I was gonna write a book, but all my grower friends said, No, no, do a journal. Because we need a, a a voice, we can write articles, blah blah blah. So mm -hmm. I say, yeah, that's a good idea. So I'm in the one room cabin under a kerosene lantern with no knowledge of of journalism or putting together a magazine. So I I did a crude sixteen page funky magazine out of newsprint and took took it down to Humboldt and Garberville and down to uh, Mendocino and got it in, got it into little stores, corner stores up in the hills, and uh, went into the, the fertilizer and grow shops that were outdoor down in Humboldt. There was no indoor, and so uh, it all immediately took off. It was like it was like a, a needed thing, I guess. And so then it sort of got its life of its own. And uh, then the New York Times did a story on me, and that really made it 
popular. Mm -hmm. And then the Phil Donahue show had me on. And then I started doing all this national TV and it really took off at that point. Well, I'm debating the DEA and the uh, politicians that, you know, are spewing all the lies that, that they've done for decades. And I'm in a suit and tie and, and, uh, and I look presentable and, and they got pissed at me. They, they just uh, hated me. And so um, in 1988, there's this hippie fair down in, up in Oregon called the Oregon Country Fair. And Ken Kesey, the author, read Sensimia Tips and we smoked a joint together. And uh, he said, kid, the time to be a rebel is over. It's time to head for the hills and watch the proceedings from the hills. And I'm there, what? This guy's, you know, a revolutionary. He's telling me, because this was during Reagan. And uh, mm. so I, did, I didn't follow his advice. And then a year later, in 1989, they did Operation Green Merchant. And Operation Green Merchant was... Uh, uh, this thing where they raided all the grow shops across the country, 62 grow shops. And um, I had one of the shops that was a separate corporation from my publishing business because back uh, when I went down to Humboldt, I saw all these grow shops with people with wads of $100 bills buying all these supplies. I said, shit, I could do a grow shop. And then I went to Seattle and saw the same thing for indoor. So I started one of the first hybrid out, indoor outdoor grow shops called Full Moon Farm Products. Mm -hmm. And so it became really successful. And uh, so they targeted all my advertisers and one of my advertisers was my own store, but I had separate corporations so they weren't intertwined. So the way they took down my store was they came in and they cased the place out and noticed that my manager was a Vietnam vet and one of my workers were Vietnam vets. And every two weeks I'd have meetings and I said, if they mention the M word, throw them out of the store. Because about two years earlier, and this is how they got Tommy Chung using the drug paraphernalia in the drug paraphernalia act, they listed metal halide lights, high pressure sodium lights, drip irrigation, fertilizer, all this stuff. With the way that they could tie it in was the intent to use it to grow cannabis. And so they used advertising. Uh, if the store employees sold equipment, knowing that it was going to be used to grow cannabis. So I, I knew about this drug paraphernalia law. And so I said, if they mention the word, if they say it's going to be used for anything illegal, throw them out of the store. So they come in and if they don't leave the store, call the police and have arrested for trespassing. So they all nod their head every two weeks during staff meetings. And then uh, the DEA case the place out for a month before Operation Green Merchant, end of October, 1989. And they, they found out that my manager and one employer were Vietnam vets. So they come in one day and they go, uh, we want to grow some cannabis. We want to buy some lights. We want to get some fertilizer. They listed all the stuff they needed. 
And my employees go like, we can't sell you that if that's what you're going to do. And they didn't throw them out. And so then they got into a half hour dialogue about Vietnam, about the war, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of this half hour conversation, they go, we changed our minds. We want to grow tomatoes. And they sold them the lights and the hydroponics, everything. Damn, and they got away with that. The police got away with that. That's not like entrapment or anything. Right. They, the, the judge goes, and civil forfeiture, nobody gets arrested. They arrest the merchandise. So the judge goes, <laughs> yes. the, the judge goes, they should have known that it was going to be used for cannabis. That's what they said to begin with. And well, and that they were lying. They were going to grow cannabis. Well, they were lying to begin with because they're not going to grow anything. They're they're mm. trying to entrap me, like you said. So, so uh, they took seventy five grand worth of stuff, and uh, to get to even fight to get it back, you got to post ten percent bond to get it back. So the community held a fundraiser and they raised fifteen grand. Awesome. And I got up and gave a long-winded speech. And uh, I said, if if you disagree with what this federal prosecutor, and there were like 500 people there, if you disagree with what the federal prosecutor did, call him. Here's his phone number. And I gave out cards with his phone number. So the guy, the federal prosecutor, calls my lawyer and goes, tell that motherfucker if he wants to get charged with conspiracy, we can do that. Which if they had the evidence, they would have charged me with conspiracy because they hated my ass to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. So it was a threat. And my wife at the time said, if they offer you a plea deal, take it. So of course they tell my lawyer, but he can sign the agreement that we get to keep the stuff. He never opens a garden store again and we'll be done with it. And so she threatened to divorce me if I didn't sign it. And so I signed it. And so I, so I tried keeping sense me a tips going, but they raided all the advertisers because they said that anybody that advertised and sends me a tips are high times. They also went after high times advertising. They said anybody that advertises in those publications, their intent is to sell out to cannabis growers. But a year earlier, I had seen the handwriting on the wall. I knew they eventually were going to come after uh, grow lights and and grow equipment and stuff. So I started a magazine called Growing Edge. And Growing Edge didn't mention the M word or cannabis or anything. It just told high tech information on how to do it. And a lot of the articles were about vegetables, tomato, cucumbers, things like that. Mm-hmm. But the information can be used to grow anything. So, and then it took me around the world. I went to like 21 countries because I would go to conferences. The International Society of Horticulture Science would have a conference every year in a different country around the world. So I went to like 21 countries and I'd stay uh, three weeks after the conference and go to farms and write stories about the farms. So it was basically a one, one month vacation, but I was working and having fun at the same time. Anyway, uh, I did Growing Edge. Well, I had to close the grow shop, but I and eventually sent to me a tips lost all its advertisers. So I had to shut down sent to me a tips. But all the subscribers and everybody moved to Growing Edge because they knew me and they knew it was quality information and stuff. And so 
uh, Growing Edge even did better than Sent Me a Tips because it was both cannabis growers reading it and vegetable growers reading it. And it had a circulation of over 45,000 at its peak. So I kept doing Growing Edge. And, um, and then in 2009, I just, uh, my wife from way back eventually divorced me. And so I just retired and um, moved down to Sacramento. And I've been down here ever since. And so I tried being relevant in cannabis, being uh, expert witness in defense trials. And uh, then lawyers hired me to be an appraiser of all things after it became legal because people would, growers would enter contracts with landowners. And then at harvest time, there'd be a dispute over money of, of one thing or another. So the landowners would, oh, hire lawyers that then would hire me to go and appraise the crop before uh, harvest. So I did that for a while. And um, uh, then when I had my heart attack a couple of years ago, I just said, I'm done. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to lay back and enjoy, you know, the years I have left on this planet. And when I had my heart attack after 52 years of smoking, I just, I couldn't smoke anymore because it cuts my oxygen. Mm -hmm. And the doctor said, just do gummies and tinctures. So that's all I do now. Mm -hmm. Damn, that's a crazy story, mate. It's... I should write a movie script because I got yeah. so many stories. Back when I would, so after it was a quarterly magazine sent to me at tips and then it became bi-monthly. And when any issue came out, I'd always travel down through Humboldt, all through Southern Oregon, down to Humboldt, Mendocino, all the way down to Santa Cruz, usually. And see all my good friends, Ed Rosenthal, Dave Watts, all the people that, uh, Mel Frank, all the people that were in publishing. And, um, and then met a whole bunch of growers because they, they knew who I was one way or another. And classic stories like, this one time these growers took me out to this uh, redneck grower area where they were having a, a party in the woods with cans up in the trees and they were shooting the cans out of the trees and they were drunk and high and just in there, holy shit, we could get shot here. And, <laughs> and so then my growers say, well, there's another party. And so we go to this other party and everybody's sitting on couches under the trees, just hanging out and smoking doobies and, it was a dichotomy of going from the redneck party to the hippie party. And nice. that'd be a good scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. A ton of time you went through right there, the, the rough 70s and, and probably the, you know, the, the turbulent war and drug times of the 80s as well. You've seen a lot of government persecution. And, and, and uh, mm -hmm. I do remember yeah. some of those times back then. It's, but it's amazing that the government can charge you with, let's, let's call it this thought crime. You were intending to sell this to grow something, so you're you're guilty. That's that's like right there at 1984, isn't it? I know, it's crazy. Yeah, one of the the so I created a little press badge. This is like uh, like 80, 1986 or so, a press badge, and I went down to Humboldt, and they were doing Operation Camp campaign against marijuana planting, and. They had held a, uh, a draft on 
who could get into the helicopter with the National Guard as they're going to raid a cannabis patch. Duh. They picked my card. And so I'm up there with, like, <laughs> with the CBS and uh, and all the network. And they're, who the fuck are you? And I go, send me a tip. And they go, what? And, <laughs> and Girl so, bags up here raiding, raiding weed stops. <laughs> so I got these great pictures, unfortunately, of them cutting down all these patches. But it was right on the front lines. And um, and. It was good story material, even though it was destroying some nice patches and mm -hmm. real big trees of cannabis. Mm -hmm. So it's legal now in Oregon and California. So oh, uh, have yeah. you got any kind of retribution for the money that you've lost and the stress you've been through no. over the last four or five decades? Nothing. No, it's, it's a loss that a loss that chalk it up to experience. Would you not? I would be personally. I would be demanding an apology. There's some fucked up shit, man. To to put you through so much shit. Did you ever do prison time? I just did the 24 hours from when they busted me on the patch to when mm. I got out on my arraignment, and that was the only time I did. And let me tell you, that was enough for me. I mean, yeah, I, I bet I get it. Feel yeah. like a. a a cage animal in a zoo it really is weird and you got lucky as well with the whole mistrial thing because of the typing error yeah it, how much it you even made it to trial it was like uh pre-trial and the judge said you know case dismissed so yeah lucky how but, long do you uh, think you would have been got say 20 years or something you would have gone down uh, for if most people well what was weird is after i got dismissed i went to the DA and I said, you know, I basically was trying to get a story and and he refused to be interviewed. But he said, you know, if you were just growing a hundred plants, I would have considered that personal use. And I said a hundred plants then, personal use. Then, wow. Mm -hmm. But then they they lowered it down after they read my magazine and saw how good people were growing big plants, they said no. Five to seven plants are personal use, and but when I got it, they he would have if it was a hundred plants, he would have just considered personal use and probably done a fine and probation. But people that were growing large quantities were getting anywhere from two to five years, and usually like a five to ten thousand dollar fine. Wow! At some point, you were given a hundred thousand dollar fine. Did you say? Well, that's that was the maximum that right. somebody. Uh, even if you were growing back then one plant, you could then face in that. Wow. I mean, a cultivation of anything, because this was before medical cannabis and, and way before any, you know, medical cannabis happened like in, in uh, 2004 in Oregon. And I think it was 90, 98 or something in California. Um, and then now there's, I think it's 24 states have recreational legalization and 34, 35 have medical. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy now. There's more than 50% of the United States are legalized now, right? In some way. Yeah, or uh, 
20 states plus the District of Columbia, but if you go on by population, yes, more than 50% of the population has ac right. access to uh, legal cannabis recreationally. Right. Yeah. Wow. Crazy but the thing is, now, now that it's legal, it's becoming a corporate commodity. The corporations have moved in, like down in uh, Salinas, Santa Barbara, all that area, there's 100, 150 acre greenhouses run by these huge corporations. Mm -hmm. Small farmers are getting driven out. The wholesale price of cannabis now is $200, $250 a pound. Wow. A lot of growers didn't even harvest this year. They just let it rot in the field because it wasn't worth paying trimmers to trim it. Wow. I fully yeah. understand that. They used to be paying $100 a pound for trimming. And man, you can't pay that if you got a $200 pound. Yeah. It's... It's a disaster on the West Coast. I don't know, back East or in the Midwest, it might be better, but Washington, Oregon, California, there's a glut. And a lot of the uh, growers aren't getting paid because they got to front it to the stores or the, the distributor and they aren't getting paid. And it's just a disaster. The small growers are getting fucked. It's always going to happen when, as soon as the, uh, as soon as it's properly legalized, all the big companies are going to get involved and they're just, outprice everybody it's yeah it goes. it's like a, just a corporate commodity now mm -hmm. so what do you think is going to happen in the long run do you think the price will continue to reduce do you think it'll balance well, out it's going to be federally legalized i mean i'd say in the next five six seven years mm -hmm. sooner who knows yeah it can't but, be too um, far away surely but the states like Oregon and California have already made state uh, legislation so that when that happens, it's going to happen immediately. They've passed legislation that will allow interstate commerce right away once the feds legalize it. Right. And That's a smart move. But the thing is, it's really not going to solve the glut issue because yeah. there's so many states, the corporations are moving in on all the medical and all the recreational adult use and it's it's not going to make maybe at first it'll help but it's just going to be the same problem over mm. again and it'll yeah, be just some particular states growing everything to you because you won't grow in alaska if you can grow in california well jeff I've been, jeff and i spoke at conferences up in alaska and went to some uh commercial operation because medical was legal up there yeah, they're growing stuff indoors up there. And then Jeff got the autoflower popular up there. So people are growing outside with autoflower. Yeah. Autoflowers are really cool because in 30 days, no matter what the light level, they just start flowering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the commercial growers are interspacing them with the regular photoperiod plants. And by the time the autoflowers are done and, and mature, the the regular photo period plants are moving in on the canopy. And so outdoor growers can get two crops in the same mm -hmm. month space. Wow. Yeah. Autos are very uh, useful. And, really... and the THC can be up to 19, 20%. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the, like at the Emerald cup and the various uh, cups, the judges now aren't just going on high THC. They want aroma. They look at the terpene, uh, analysis mm -hmm. and so it's not just uh getting whacked out on on high thc it's 
it's the whole um, aroma and yeah, the entourage effect is what we yeah. want. We want that flavor. We want that feeling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So what was it like back in the 70s making a magazine about cannabis? You must have suffered a lot of trouble getting it done, getting it printed, getting it sent out. Yeah, I had to shop around for printers and um, I, I was close to Eugene, Oregon. So that's sort of like a hippie uh, central. So College I town. Yeah. yeah. And it's a liberal back. It's probably more conservative now than it was back then. It was like Ken Kesey lived there and the Grateful Dead would come up all the time, stay at his farm and stuff. But um, I was able to find one in Eugene and then I found one in Portland and then I found a real big one in Detroit, outside Michigan, in Michigan. And um, yeah, I didn't have much problem finding printers. It was finding distributors mm. and um I found one in San Francisco called Last Gas and one in Seattle called Homestead Book Company. And both of those uh, helped me a lot because they had newsstand access and they would get it into head shops and uh, hippie stores and stuff. And so both of them really helped me get it distributed and um, into places. It's shocking that you had the trouble like that as well, because you know freedom of speech is a major thing in the USA. And when you're making a magazine and it's just information, isn't that essentially under the First Amendment? Well, the First Amendment is uh, in tatters, basically. I mean, it 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 wasn't respected. They just they just saw it like another drug, basically, because mm-hmm. they had drug information in it. And um, if I had to do it over again. I would probably, well, knowing that my wife eventually divorced me, I would just go back up in the hills and grow it again instead of doing publishing. It it was it was fun, but I I made money, but I made a lot of other people money because the advertisers made a lot of money. I would get cannabis growers coming. Oh, I bought my farm by following everything you wrote about, and you know mm-hmm. I made a lot of other people money. Same mm-hmm. man. But how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking, Tom, uh, Alex? 72. 72. Well, it's just a, you've been in this game for a long time, man. Yeah. Do you still oh. grow your own? No, I I grew up until I rented this house I'm in now, and it's next to a school and a church. Actually, it's owned by the school and the church. And in the lease, they wrote that you can't grow. But I have so much left over from... Uh, previous years and they're in <laughs> seal meal things nice. but i don't smoke anymore i i have a magical butter machine have you ever seen that mm-hmm. the magic oh yeah yeah and so i up in oregon they have this thing called the uh, uh organic alcohol company and they sell everclear 200 proof 190 proof and 125 nice. proof and it's flavored so you can get grape uh coconut orange it's got a flavor to it and so I put that in the magical butter machine and make tinctures. And so um, that's basically what I use now. And um, I consulted some people um, this summer and they turned me on to some nice stuff. So nice. I don't have to grow anymore. I grow veggies. That's that's what I grow. I just harvested lettuce and uh 
broccoli this morning. Mm-hmm. Do you get uh, little bits off these places that you're consulting with as well? Do you do you get a few ads of those? Up. I gave that up. I'm I'm just hmm. just living. Uh, I play softball twice a week and I play ice hockey still. And I cool. just I just uh, hang out. Mm-hmm. I've, I've busted my ass for all these years. Oh yeah, for and, sure. You deserve to have a rest, you know. Yeah, but it's it's been fun. But like I said, if I had to do it over again, I'd probably just go up in the hills and grow again. Mm-hmm. If I could go back to my younger self. Yeah, the th- things you can learn looking back on life. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and all that. But you know, I listened to your interview with Jeff Lowenfels and. Uh, both Jeff and, and George Jorge Cervantes, his yep. real name's George Van Penn. Um, they both, uh, I met him when, like Jeff was a chemical farmer, uh, my, miracle Grow adherent. And <laughs> I went in uh, 90, 1996 to a workshop to listen to Elaine Ingham. And I've been organic my whole life because I grew up, uh, on summers, I'd go to my grandfather's farm, and he he would show me how to grow organically, and and so I sort of done it since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Jeff uh, was chemical to begin with, and then um, I went to uh, Elaine Ingham's workshop on who created the soil food web mm-hmm. concept, and um, I came back with pictures and stuff. And we met up at the garden writers and I said, Jeff, you got to see this. This, And so I showed him pictures of a nematode uh, in the root zone and he researched it and looked into it and he became this evangelical organic, you know, apostle Mm -hmm. of organics. And, you know, so he's done a total 180 on, um, from chemical to organics with, with, with George we really became best friends when he lived in Oregon. Now he's in Barcelona. He just mm-hmm. came to visit the U S uh, a couple months ago, mm-hmm. but he came into my store in 1983 and said, I'm going to write a, back then we called it marijuana, a marijuana book. I said, great, come back when it's done. And so he came back like four or five months later and threw it on the counter. I said, great, let's go burn one. And we went out back and burned one. <laughs> And uh, I still have his original book from back oh, then. Wow, that's fucking awesome, yeah. man. First edition print, wow. So I'm honored that Jeff and, I, and George are best friends. Uh, we don't see each other that much anymore because, you know, Jeff's mostly in Alaska and once in a while in Portland. Mm-hmm. And, uh, George lives in Barcelona. We have Jorge on the show on Saturday. We're going to be speaking to Jorge. Oh, cool. We speak to him. Make sure we tell you when was the last time you spoke to him? You speak to him much? We FaceTime uh, every couple months. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Usually he's sitting in a cafe. He's he's got a good life. He's he's mm. done really well. Yeah, he's a cool guy, man. Yeah. But just to think that he came into your shop nearly 40 years ago now. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> That's crazy, right? Yeah. And then he opened a garden store too. And did pretty well up in Portland, Oregon. Awesome. And, uh, then when they did Operation Green Merchant, they didn't hit him. Oh, right. And he said, uh, I'm done and just closed the shop up because 
it freaked everybody out. You know, here mm. you are in a garden store and they come in and just back a truck up and take take arrest the merchandise, basically. Yeah. I mean, you lost 75K, right? Yeah. That's crazy, yeah. man. It's a lot yeah. of money to lose. It's, it's a big I risk know. to take. Yeah. But, you know. We were doing really well. It was because there wasn't any hybrid shop of both indoor and outdoor. We were the first hybrid up in Seattle. They had indoor and down in Humboldt, they had outdoor and I merged them together. And uh, people that read my magazine down in Humboldt would come up with huge uh, U-Haul trucks and, you know, buy 20, 30 grand worth of equipment because there were no uh, uh, light shops down there in the early eighties. Mm -hmm. It was just outdoor and so they switched to to both growing it in the summer outdoors and then in the winter indoors down there. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy how they lumped lights in, you know, for gen general grow equipment. Do you think there was anybody out there who was legitimately growing or just like um, ornamental plants indoors and then got busted because they were assumed to be growing cannabis instead? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people that that were growing like orchids and roses and and uh, things like that under under lights would get visits from the cops because the cops would see them come into the store, get their license plate and then or follow them home and uh, then get a search warrant. Mm. And, you know, the, no cannabis, but flowers. Yeah. Roses. Or, I've always wondered what the score is with that. You know, it's like, could you be as dodgy as possible and get followed by the police that come and raid your house, but they only find like orchids and normal plants. If that happens a couple of times and they're not going to come back for the third time. So then you're free to grow whatever you want and they won't check up on you, right? <laughs> That's you true. would think that, but you can't always guarantee that. Matt. That's right. You know, yeah, you can't. <laughs> somebody new shows up at the office and decides to go check out that guy again. Yeah, but after the third time, you know, you could be like, this is harassment. You're destroying yeah. my property. You're ruining my life. I'm scared all the time. Mm, uh, you could make it work. I don't know. <laughs> Alex knows back in the day, though, they didn't They didn't think harassment mm. was any big deal, man. They did it. They didn't care. Yeah. yeah. What's ironic, in a lot of the raids, and, and they'd confiscate equipment and stuff from growers and sell it at auctions. Mm -hmm. And then when they found out the growers were coming to the auctions and buying the stuff, they started giving it to schools. And the joke was, yeah, they're the schools are training future cannabis growers. <laughs> and why not? You know, kids yeah. got to learn how to grow too. Yeah. Maybe not cannabis, but you know, they still got to learn how to grow. When did it become properly illegal in the US? It was nineteen twenty-six. When it's been a long time. But then Nixon had that hardcore war on drugs. It was Nixon who started it, right? Yeah, Nixon started the war on drugs in seventy-three. Even though the Schaefer report recommended not to make cannabis illegal he, he uh, disobeyed the report and made it illegal the only country in the world that didn't listen to the report is holland the netherlands wow yeah uh 73 uh it was i mean you were freaked out to smoke a joint in public but people we did but you were definitely looking over your shoulder mm-hmm and the but cannabis the itself has changed. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying the cannabis itself has changed a lot since then as well. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. The, the, you know, 
I don't like skunk. I got sprayed by a skunk about 12 years ago, riding my bike home from a bar <laughs> one o'clock in the morning. So I don't like skunk. But I grew, it was called bazooka bubble gum. It smelled just like bubble gum, just oh, yeah. like bazooka bubble gum. So I like fruity, sweet smell and stuff. Mm, same. Yep. I love the fruity weed, man. That's my shit. Yeah. yeah, just coming to us contact with a skunk one time is enough to get you a broke of that yeah. habit of liking that smell. Yeah. And when it initially it doesn't smell like a skunk, it smells like burnt onions. And so I got home and I said, Oh, it must not have been a skunk. It must have been something else. So I washed it off and passed out in bed. And then the next morning I go, Oh shit, it was a skunk. Yeah, and it just sticks to everything, never goes away. Throw out the sheets, the blankets, everything. It was like so funky. Yeah, we don't have them in the UK. Oh, Would you really? like some? Yeah, sure. Might as well. We, we need some kind of animals over here. We killed them all. Wow. We don't have many wild animals in the UK right now. Even out in the country? Uh, well, I suppose I don't go out in the country very much. I saw a deer once. <laughs> oh. But yeah, we don't have many animals uh, wild in the UK. Not as many as you would think. Uh, foxes and yeah, hedgehogs. Of foxes and hedgehogs, yeah. Nothing dangerous. Nothing that's going <laughs> to spray you in the face with its ash juice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's so eloquently. Mm -hmm. So you say you're in uh, Sacramento, California now? I am. Outside in the suburbs, yeah. So they've been legal for quite a while now, right? The thing is, is uh, they let the the way the state law is, and this is both for medical and uh, adult use recreation. This they left it up so that cities and counties can make it illegal under zoning laws to grow it, or have dispensaries, or have distribution or delivery. So only the major cities like Sacramento, uh, Davis, just the around this area, just the major cities have mm. legal. Where if you're if you're in the Sacramento County area and you're growing it, they can come in and and give you a, a zoning violation, which is can be a high fine. But the thing is, is that people everywhere are growing it and the zoning uh, code, they call it code enforcement people yeah. won't come unless they get dozens of complaints. And if you don't grow the skunky stuff, you're not going to get a lot of complaints. If mm -hmm. it's just nice, sweet, flowery, sweet smelling stuff, you won't get a lot of complaints. But I talk to people that work on pool that clean pools and uh, lawn maintenance guys they say 80 percent of my custom of their customers are grown wow and it's because people want their own cannabis yeah they you want to go out quality. and buy it when you can grow it in your garden for pretty much and, nothing and they want high quality stuff mm -hmm. they don't want, want the way you want it yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about commercial, yeah. commercial corporate and it's just like alcohol. People want high quality alcohol and people want low quality alcohol. And, you know, it's easier to grow cannabis than it is to brew your own beer or wine. Mm -hmm. For sure, man. I've always wanted to see if I could brew my own, but never got around to it because it's just, it just seems too difficult, man. 
<laughs> Seems it's difficult work. to leave, leave shit sitting in a barrel for a year or so. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. My son's a brewer uh, at a brewery in Oregon, and cool. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's, I don't know, man. It's just it's not. It doesn't seem as enjoyable as what growing cannabis is, because cannabis growing is an enjoyable hobby for sure. Yeah. Well, it is to you, but it may, it may not be to everybody. Some people may enjoy brewing beer and, you know, watching the watching tanks bubble. Yeah, I'd love to make my own whiskey. That'd be fucking cool, man. But I don't it's know if I got the patience to let it sit in a barrel for so long. Well, you know, before you make, you make whiskey, you have to make beer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot of distilleries, small distilleries cropping up all around Oregon, California that do small batch whiskeys and gins and and things like that. Yeah, that's popular all over the U.S. now, I think. We have several of them down here in the Deep South, even. Uh, the stories that are open up, local cool. stuff. Yeah, they're using local ingredients to make local spirits, that kind of stuff. It should be that way. Sure, it should be that way with cannabis, too. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah, we talked about it, you know, every every area is going to have their own, let's say, flair to it. So why not, man? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I suppose you you don't want to get another magazine up and running. Have you ever tried moving anything online there, Alex? Like doing a website or anything like that? Well, we had a website. Our first website was in 93 or 94. Wow, really early. And uh, we did online stuff, but I've just given all that up. It's mm-hmm. I, mean, I got all these archives of stuff. I could probably do it because they're basically PDFs whenever we did. Uh, when I hired staff, like 1983 when it got real popular i hired a editor and a graphic artist i didn't do it myself anymore and mm-hmm. we when adobe came out with a, a pdf form we saved everything in pdf so i could probably do that i just i just i don't want to work anymore yeah for <laughs> sure man. You, man for I sure you. you've already put enough of the work in yeah I'm actually, I work 20 hours a week at a, a nursery selling uh, plants that are traditional legal plants. Awesome. Uh, so that that's an activity that I do. But, um, and I, I didn't realize I knew so much about plants until I started giving advice to people. <laughs> it's just, plant. It's it just sounds plant. like a good end to the movie as well you know all this boisterousness for 50 years trying to do the whole cannabis thing you know, right. flying in helicopters and then at the end you just get the this old guy just working away in a little flower shop somewhere selling plants selling petunias you yeah. know what i'm saying it's yeah, beautiful yeah. ending yeah <laughs> it's green acres nursery it's called and uh it's got seven locations and they got around Sacramento and they just opened four in Austin, Texas. Nice. So Alex, yeah. you lived through all the, the, the illegal times and, and went through all of that trouble and that big story you told us. Did you ever think that you would actually see it become legal where you could actually walk into a dispensary now and buy it legally without well, the cops actually looking at you funny? Yeah, in the 80s, we we believed it was going to happen. It just uh, took longer than we thought. Oh yeah, uh, it did actually. And mm. you know, there's what I like is everything we were saying came true. Like 
they always would say the kids would use it more while well, their studies coming out they're saying they're not using it more mm -hmm. right you know and, and they they would just use kids as a prop as a mm -hmm. propaganda prop and um like they really care yeah, they don't yeah yeah like i used to say mackie but what about the children you know yeah. that's what they Won't always somebody say. please think of the children exactly it's just bullshit but, man you know, yeah, we always maintain that legal cannabis is probably the best way to keep it out of the hands of children because legally you don't sell it to children. That's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. right. Legacy market doesn't care. Yeah, when I was on Donahue, the, uh, somebody in the audience accused me of selling it to kids. I said, well, I didn't have it. The cops got it all. And you should ask them because they stole it from me and <laughs> I don't know who they were going to sell it to. Mm -hmm. It's a great story. I and mean, we hope to see a movie one day. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you didn't have to do any serious time there. You know, no, no mm -hmm. uh, real record, if you will. Yeah, I am too, because 24 hours was enough. Yeah, I'll bet, I man. I'll bet. I think I'll follow my, my little three rules and try and stay out of, stay out of the limelight there, you know? Mm -hmm. Don't tell for, now. for now, for now, until, yeah, the, until really. times change. Until it changes, yes. And it's coming. So, yeah, thank you very much, Ali. It's been a pleasure, man. Good talking with you both. So yes. to meet up live someday. Oh, oh yeah, that would that be awesome. Right. Uh, MJ BizCon, a four hundred and fifty k party, will be there, wasted. You know, <laughs> <laughs> next year, next year, Mackie. Let's, let's do okay. it, man. Let's do it. All right, all right, man. All right. Thanks yeah. a lot, Alex. Bye, Appreciate Alex. You, we are Thank waving you. goodbye. See you, <laughs> man. So yes, everybody, that was Tom Alexander. As you can tell, he's been through a lot throughout the years, has some super cool stories to tell. And, you know, he's been friends with all of the legends from Ed Rosenthal, Jorge Cervantes, Jeff Lowenthal's, all of these cool guys from back in the day when people wasn't allowed to grow cannabis. So thank you very much to Tom for coming to join us. We really appreciate his time. And it was good to just sit and chill and chat with a legend for an hour or so. So I hope you all enjoyed the interview. It would be great if you could leave a review of the podcast or you could share it with friends. That's always massively appreciated, but of course, no pressure. But as usual, thank you for downloading and listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope we can catch you on Sunday's live show, which will be the last show before Christmas. So if you're free, it would be good for you to come and join us because we're going to take a couple of weeks off after then. But as again... Thank you very much for downloading and listening to the show. We appreciate it very much. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll catch you on Friday for the Grow Guides and hopefully catch you on the live show on Sunday. But for now, enjoy the rest of your week. Stay high, stay safe, and we'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.